So 2 Samuel 14. So just to remind you, this is a continuation of the saga that begins in 2 Samuel 11. David commits adultery. David commits murder. David is forgiven by the Lord. He's not going to die for those sins. But there are um, on specifically uh, sexual sin and violence are introduced into David's family. David sowed those things in sleeping with Bathsheba and killing her husband Uriah, and then he reaps those things in his own family. Last week, we looked at the brutal story in 2 Samuel 13. You'll see up here just a little uh, family tree to help you remember who's who. So David's oldest son, Amnon, who is the heir apparent to the throne, rapes David's daughter, Tamar, who is Amnon's half-sister. David is furious, but he doesn't act. He just gets angry, but doesn't do anything. Two years later, Absalom, who's Tamar's full brother, who's Amnon's half-brother, who's David's third son, next in line. That's a lot to keep up with. Absalom is next in line to the throne behind Amnon. Absalom murders Amnon. Premeditated, cold-blooded murder. And then he runs away. He runs to his granddad's house, Talmay. That's his maternal grandmother, Uh, grandfather, excuse me, he runs to his maternal grandfather's house 80 miles away in a place called Geshur. It's a a non-Israelite territory. So we have a son raping his half-sister. Father David gets mad but does nothing. Then another son takes matters into his own hands, kills his half-brother, and then flees to his grandfather's house. And that, he's there for three years. So chapter 14 picks up Three years after chapter 13 ends. We just read it sequentially, but there's a three-year gap between the end of chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14. And during those three years, David and Absalom are estranged from one another. Absalom is living with his grandfather in Geshur. David is living in Jerusalem. So that's where we're going to pick up chapter 14, verse 1. Joab, the son of Zeruiah knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom, so Joab sent someone to Tekoa and had a wise woman brought from there. He said to her, pretend you're in mourning, dress in mourning clothes, and don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak these words to him. And Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman woman from Tekoa went to the king, she fell with her face to the ground to pay him honor, and she said, help me, your majesty. The king asked her, what's troubling you? She said, I'm a widow. My husband's dead. I, your servant, had two sons. They got into a fight with each other in the field, and no one was there to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen up against your servant. They say, hand over the one who struck his brother down so that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. Then we will get rid of the heir as well. They would put out the only burning coal I have left, leaving my husband neither name nor descendant on the face of the earth. The king said to the woman, go home, I will issue an order in your behalf. But the woman from Tekoa said to him, let my lord the king pardon me and my family and let the king and his throne be without guilt. The king replied, if anyone says anything to you, bring them to me and they will not bother you again. She said, then let the king invoke the Lord his God to prevent the avenger of blood from adding to the destruction so that my son will not be destroyed. As surely as the Lord lives, he said, not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. Then the woman said, let your servant speak a word to my lord, the king. Speak, he replied. The woman said, why then have you devised a thing like uh, like this against the people of God? 
When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son, speaking of Absalom. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, God divides his way so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. And now I've come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid. Your servant thought I will speak to the king. Perhaps he will grant his servant's request. Perhaps the king will agree to deliver his servant from the hand of the man who's trying to cut off both me and my son from God's inheritance. And now your servant says, may the word of my lord the king secure my inheritance. For my lord the king is like an angel of God in discerning good and evil. May the Lord your God be with you. Then the king said to the woman, don't keep from me the answer to what I'm going to ask you. Let my lord the king speak, the woman said. The king said, isn't the hand of Joab with you in all of this? The woman answered, as surely as you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or left from anything my lord the king says. Yes, it was your servant Joab who instructed me to do this. And you put all these words into the mouth of your servant. Your servant Joab did this to change the present situation. My Lord has wisdom like that of an angel of God. He knows everything that happens in the land. The king said to Joab, very well, I will do it. Go bring back the young man Absalom. Joab fell with his face to the ground to pay him honor, and he blessed the king. Joab said, today your servant knows that he's found favor in your eyes, my Lord the king, because the king has granted his servant's request. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. This kind of a, the, the action is very simple. Joab moves from Geshur back to Jerusalem. The action is simple, but there's a whole lot of words that are used to communicate that. And to me, it's, it's odd. The whole thing Seems, feels odd to me. The chapter 14 opens with David, Joab, knowing that David's heart longs for Absalom. So that to me implies that after three years, David desires some level of, of restoration or reconciliation with his son. But rather than David either just acting on that feeling and desire, or rather than Joab just saying to David, hey, that's a great idea. Why don't you bring him back? Enough time has passed or water under the bridge or whatever. Why don't you just go to him or or, or I'll send a messenger and bring him back. Rather than being direct and straightforward, Joab launches into this really convoluted production where he brings a woman from Tekoa, a neighboring town, and he has her dress up like she's a widow. And he gives her this story that... As a widow, she has two sons, and they're in a field, and they fight, and one kills the other, and now her extended family wants to kill her only remaining son. They're saying they want to do it uh, to avenge the one who's died as as an expression of justice, but really all they want is to get rid of her last heir, the only burning coal she has left, and then the name of her husband will disappear, and all of his property will go to these extended family, and will not stay in his family line anymore. It's And David's response to her, and she, she's approaching him as um, as a judge. Part of David's job would have been to decide very difficult legal cases. And so she's approaching him in that uh, capacity. And he says, well, I'll, I'll write an order for you. I'll issue an order on your behalf. And she says to him, this is long back and forth. Instead of just saying, okay, she says, well, I don't want you to be considered guilty, basically saying... I don't want people to think you're being unrighteous, that you're not following the law. And David says, if anybody says anything to you like that, you send them to me. 
and I'll take care of that. And then she says, do you promise? And he says, yes, I promise I'm going to do this. And then she turns and we see that the truth of why she comes, she just kind of pivots and says, what you just did, it convicts you. The thing that you're saying my extended family can't do and killing my only son, that's basically what you're doing by keeping Absalom in Geshur, by causing him to live in exile, by not bringing him back. You're doing the very thing that you just issued an order against. She's basically saying people die. That's just part of life. We can't bring them back. Amnon's gone. But God doesn't, he's not a part of that. God works to bring back people who are banished from him. And then she goes back into her story. It's story, truth, story. Then she goes back into her story, and with this very flowery and uh, kind of groveling language, she's saying, thank you, you're awesome, you're super wise, everything you do is directed by God. And then David says, he sees through all of it and says, is Joab behind this? Did Joab put you up to this? And she says, of course, you're brilliant. Nothing gets past you. Yes, Joab put me up to this. And I think Joab's probably in the room the whole time because David just turns to him and says, okay, go get Absalom and bring him back. And then Joab falls down before him and bows and you're wonderful and you're great. And he goes and he brings Absalom back. And then again, the, the odd thing is that this is something David wanted. If his heart longed for Absalom then how come when Absalom comes back, he doesn't see him? He says, he can't see my face, and we're not going to get to this today, but we'll see next week. It's two years before Absalom and David see each other face to face. So he's moved back home, in a sense. He's in Jerusalem, his own house. But he's moved back home, but he's still estranged from his father. It's just, it, the whole thing is odd to me. I actually think the whole thing, it makes it slimy to me. It feels manipulative. To me, some of y'all were here a couple of weeks ago when we looked at chapter 12 of Second Samuel, and there's some echoes of chapter 12 that we see in chapter 14. There's some superficial similarities, but there's some fundamental differences. If you remember chapter 12, Nathan goes to David. Nathan's a prophet. He goes to David, and uh, he's sent by God in order to convict David of his sin. And so he tells David a story. It's very similar to what we just read in chapter 14. Nathan goes to David and he tells him this story. There's a rich man. He had tons of sheep. There's a poor man who had one little precious baby sheep. And this rich man took the, 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 the sheep of the poor man, butchered it, and fed it to a guest who was coming. And David is outraged at the behavior of this rich man. And he says, that guy's going to die, which is over the top. And then he kind of brings it back down and says... He's going to pay back four times what he stole, which is, that's what the law says. Pay back four times. And then Nathan pivots and says, you're the man. What that rich man did to the poor man, you did to Uriah. You took the only wife he had, Bathsheba, and then you killed him. And David repents. It's a very similar story. This is at least five years later, if not more, that Joab puts the words in the, in the, the mouth of this wise woman and sends her to David. Similarities in a similar situation. There's something lingering in David's life he's not addressing. In chapter 12, he has a lingering sin issue. Nathan goes to David on the day his baby with Bathsheba is born. So nine months after they commit adultery. Probably eight months after he's murdered Uriah. That sin has just been 
floating undealt with in David's life. It's been lingering for nine months. And in chapter 14, there's this lingering separation between David and Absalom that's gone on for 36 months. There's a, a similar tactic. Someone is sent to David with a, a, a story. Maybe in the best light you want to call it a parable. It's a made-up story designed to convey an important truth. With Nathan, it's a story of this rich man and the poor man and their sheep. And with in chapter 14, with this woman from Tekoa, it's pretending that she has two sons, one of whom killed the other. And the idea behind that story is to get David as the, the chief legal officer in Israel to make a, a, a legal judgment about a case that's similar to what's going on in his life to hopefully open his eyes. And in both cases, there's a result. Something is produced. In chapter 12, David repents and is forgiven. In chapter 14, Absalom comes back home. But I think all of those similarities are superficial. And I think the differences between chapter 12 and chapter 14 are much more fundamental, beginning with who starts all the action. Chapter 12 opens with this statement, the Lord sent Nathan. The Lord instigated chapter 12. Chapter 14 and verse 2, we see Joab sent for a woman. Joab instigates the action in chapter 14. Regardless of his motives, he's not God, but he's the instigator in chapter 14. In chapter 12, the instrument or the agent is Nathan, who is a prophet. God puts words in the mouth of Nathan. In chapter 14, the instrument or the agent is a wise woman from Tekoa. That word wise is the same word we saw last week that was used of Jonadab. In chapter 13, it's translated shrewd. In chapter 13, it means someone who knows how to get things done. It doesn't necessarily mean that the things they get done are the things that should be done. It just means they're good at getting things done. And she is. She is. And Joab puts words in the in the mouth of this woman. So in chapter 12, God puts the words in the mouth of his prophet, Nathan. In chapter 14, Joab puts words in the mouth of a shrewd woman who knows how to get things done. Very different. The motivation behind each is different. Chapter 11, the last sentence in chapter 11, this thing that David did, committing adultery and murder, was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then chapter 12 picks up, and God sent Nathan. So God's desire is to provoke repentance in David. That's why he sends Nathan. It's to wake him up out of this spiritual, moral stupor that he's in, where he's just wallowing in his sin. For nine months. And so he sends a prophet, Nathan, to wake him up. Joab knew David's heart longed for his son. So Joab, he is David's nephew. He is a commander in David's army. David's his king. It could be from this heart of devotion to David as uncle and commander and king. I don't think so. I think Joab is much more politically minded than that. But regardless, his motivation is to give David what he wants. It's, I would say it's to provide comfort. My uncle, my commander, my king is upset. There's this inner angst in him regarding his estranged son, Absalom, and I want to fix that. So I'm going to bring Absalom back. He's trying to, again, in the best light, he's trying to, I would say, he's trying to comfort David, to give David what he wants. Very different from provoking repentance is providing comfort. And then I believe the fruit is different. Both produce a result. But that result is very different. In chapter 12, David repents. 
He says, after Nathan says, you're the man, he says, I've sinned before the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. And David's relationship with his heavenly father is restored. In chapter 14, Absalom comes back and he moves back into Jerusalem in his own house. But nothing's really changed for them relationally. He doesn't see David face to face. The the physical distance has been erased, but the relational distance is, is the same. They're still estranged from one another. It's illusory reconciliation at, at best. There's, there's, there's nothing there. And again, we'll see next week. It, it's two years before David ever even will see Absalom. And the only way he, reason he sees him is because Absalom really goes to some extreme measures, waving the flag, saying, you're going to talk to me. It doesn't, it's, the whole thing is really odd to me. When I read chapter 12, I think yeah, like it has this divine imprint on it. It, it. it reads like God is the one involved. God is bringing about reconciliation. God is extending mercy. There are absolutely consequences that David is going to have to face, but he's not going to die for his sin. It, it, there's, a, there's true reconciliation. There's repentance. When I read chapter 14, I just go, I don't, I don't know. It feels like Joab read a story and then tried to imitate it. It feels like he heard, hey, there was a time where Nathan came and he did this and it produced this in David's life. And he says, okay, I'm going to try that. And he goes and finds a woman who's a great actress and says, here, concoct this story and let's see if it will get David to bring Absalom home. And it does. But to me, it doesn't produce anything with any real depth in it. It's not, it's not good fruit. Is the way I would say that I was reading that. It reminded me of a little phrase in 2 Timothy 3, verse 5. Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, who's in Ephesus. And Timothy is trying to kind of get his arms around this, these false teachers in the church of Ephesus who are wreaking havoc in the church. And Paul is trying to encourage Timothy, who's a young man, here's, here's some marching orders for you. Here's how you can deal with these false teachers, and when Paul is talking about them, he says they have the form or the appearance of godliness, but they deny the power of godliness. They look good on the outside. There's nothing actually going on on the inside. And when I read chapter 14, that's what it feels like to me. It feels like the appearance of godliness. There's some superficial similarities to chapter 12. But it denies the power. There's no true transformation. There's no true uh, life change. There's no true heart change. There's no eternal fruit. But I don't know what words you want to use for that. I don't see it. Absalom absolutely moves back to Jerusalem. The 80-mile physical distance has been erased. But relationally, the gap still remains. They're still estranged. From one another. There's no movement from David towards Absalom at all. There's no, nothing is acknowledged relationally between them. The only thing that's changed is now Absalom lives down the street instead of in a different nation. That's the only thing that's changed. It's a superficial change. To me, that kind of speaks that idea of a form of godliness, but there's no real power in it. And I think about that for us and the tendency that we can have to fall into that 
same trap. And what I would use it in our language, I would probably say that it's a temptation or a tendency or the trap is to just go through the motions with the Lord. That we have a form, an outward appearance of godliness, and I don't think it's, it's hypocritical, it's just external, but there's not genuine, maybe we'll call it fruit or transformation or life change. We, we don't see that. So maybe we come and we sing and we listen, but we don't really expect God to work in our hearts. We just come because it's Sunday or or maybe we read the Bible, but we do so in a very cursory manner. We don't expect God to actually speak to us when we read. Or we pray, but we don't really pray about a whole lot because we don't really expect God to answer our prayers. Or maybe we give, but we give what we have left over. We don't really expect God to meet our needs. There's this, we're going through the motions. There's an external appearance of godliness or righteousness. And again, I don't want it deep. It's superficial. It doesn't touch the core of who we are. There's no internal change. There's no internal transformation within us. I think it's very easy to fall into that trap. For many of us, we live functionally as deists. God created the world, and he spun it into motion And now he's reading a book. And at some point, he'll come back. But between winding everything up and wrapping everything up, everything in between is really about, it's really us. It's up to us. He's not involved. He's not involved. And you can read, and that's great. And you can pray, and that's great. And you can worship, and that's great. And you can do those things, and those things are great. They just don't really have a lot of impact on what's happening God's doing something else. He's taking care of Saturn or whatever. He's not, he's not involved here on the earth any longer. And nobody, none of you believe that. If, I, if that was the test, you would pass. You would say, no, that's not true. But functionally, that is how many of us live. We live in a materialistic culture. I don't mean we like to buy things. We do. That's consumeristic. But it, 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 everything has to come to us through our senses. I've got to see it and taste it and smell it and touch it for it to be real. And God is spirit, and that we, we can't access him through our five senses. And so it's easy to functionally, it's easy over time to uh, become dismissive, for lack of a better word. It's easy over time to live our life as if he didn't exist because... We don't see him, and we don't taste him, and we don't touch him, and we don't smell him, and we don't hear him with our ears. His activity is so much of it is internal in our hearts. Even when we talk about hearing God, we're not talking about hearing him through our ears. We're talking about the, 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 him, hearing him with our, our heart, him speaking to our heart. And so, again, it's easy when we're immersed in this very material and physical world to lose track of a spiritual God. And no, nobody does that intentionally. But it's the water that we swim in and it's the air that we breathe. And so over time, we find ourselves going through the motions. And at some point, when all you're doing is going through the motions, it's easy to quit going through the motions also because there's no, it's not producing anything. And I don't want you to hear that as condemnation at all. I think it's 
I hope it's a reality check in some ways. It is for me. And I look at my life and say, does my life sound and look and feel much more like 1 Samuel 12, or excuse me, 2 Samuel 12, or 2 Samuel 14? When I look at my life, do I see inspiration? God sent Nathan. Do I see fruit? David repented. Do I see true reconciliation? Or does my life look like 2 Samuel 14? It's like, oh, that's a good try. It's close. I had a good idea. Joe, I've had a good idea. Let me try to get father and son back together here. And so he tries to figure out a way of doing that. And it's not terrible, but it's definitely not anointed. It's not inspired. And it does produce something. You know, Absalom does move home, but it doesn't produce anything really life-giving and eternal. Which one of those to you kind of feels more like your life today? You say, no, I'm, I'm a 2 Samuel 12 right now. Or you say, I'm kind of living in 2 Samuel 14. Is there an appearance, an external appearance of godliness, but internally there's a denial of the power of godliness. I don't mean denial like you would say prayer doesn't work or worship doesn't work or God doesn't speak. or God. It's not, it's not a verbal denial. It's by our life we're denying the reality behind what we're doing. The way we're approaching God denies that we believe he is real and he is active and that he moves. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you with a couple of things as we close. Three things really briefly as we close. The first thing I would say is acknowledge that before the Lord. I don't know anyone who's been a Christian for more than a minute who hasn't at some point had a stretch of time where they're going through the motions. And if that's you this morning, don't think about your global Christian life. Think about where you are on May 6, 2018. Just acknowledge that before the Lord. That's called confession. God, I confess I am going through the motions in this area of my life. It may be in every area of your life. God, when it comes to prayer, I'm just going through the motions. I don't have any confidence that you actually listen. I don't have any confidence that you actually are going to respond to the prayers that I'm praying. God, when it comes to my obedience, I'm just going through the motions. None of you are going to beat your children or rob a bank, whether you're a Christian or not. You're not going to commit those sins. So at some point, the question for me is, well, what is different because I'm following Jesus? I wouldn't have done those things anyway. So what behaviors in my life have changed because of him? Is the answer none. I'm continuing to do what I would do regardless of my allegiance to him. God, I'm going through the motions when it comes to living a holy life. I'm basically doing what I want. I wasn't going to kill anybody anyway. And I was going to gossip anyway. So I'm just going to keep doing, but I'm going to keep not killing people and I'm going to keep talking about people. I'm going through the motions. Acknowledge that before him. And then the second thing, and this seems so elementary, but I think it's so important and it is so difficult to maintain this posture. Awaken your heart to the reality that God is alive. And that, that sounds like, you know, Vacation Bible School 101. But it is so difficult, I believe, in the world in which we live to maintain a, a constant sense of awareness that God is actually alive. That God actually responds to his people. That God actually moves. That you move him when you pray. That your obedience matters. That he wants to speak to you. And if you don't get God speaking to you through your heart, he'll he'll start with him speaking to you through the word. 
He wants to speak to you. Are you giving him an opportunity to do so? It's a very, I think, a very difficult posture to maintain because it's not supported by anything that we live in on a daily basis. That's why it's important to pull away and spend some time with him to remind yourself that he's real and that he's alive and that he's active. There's a line in the screw tape letter, C.S. Lewis's book. It's about these two demons going back and forth. They're tempting this person, trying to lead this guy astray. And this guy's going through a very difficult time in his life. And it's during the war and God seems to be distant from him and this younger demon is excited. He's like, he's, he's fading. He's, he's fading. There's no feeling there anymore. And this demon, older demon, says to him, you're missing the point. Our work, in terms of tempting, is never more at stake. It's never more in danger than someone who doesn't see any evidence of God, doesn't have any feelings about God, looks around at the universe and says, where is God? And then says, it doesn't matter. The posture that says, God, I believe you're alive. I believe that you're active. I believe that you move and that you speak. I believe that you desire relationship with me. That's why you created everything that I see. was in order to enter into relationship with those who would say yes to this offer of salvation. That's what I believe, even if I don't see it. Even if it's not reinforced in my daily life, God, I'm living from that reality and that truth and that center. Will you maintain that posture? If you don't, I would say, awaken your heart to that. What's a practical way of doing that? Take a risk. Take a risk. Put yourself in a position that if God is not real and active and alive, you're going to This is not going to be good for you. Put yourself in that spot. Don't sell everything. But you could give more. Don't move to Africa. But you can go on a short-term trip somewhere. You don't have to quit your job. But you can volunteer with Scott and Tina at the table. Put yourself in a position where the Lord has to meet you. It It will... You will come alive, and it will be scary, but you'll be reminded of the reality that God is active. For many of us, we can control literally every variable. In an affluent, technologically savvy environment in which we live, there are, you can count the number of things on one hand that can happen that you can't plan for and that you can't work through. And if you have enough money... That list gets really, really small. Take a risk. Put yourself intentionally in a spot where you're saying, this is beyond my comfort zone. This is outside of my abilities. And God, I'm asking you to, I'm trusting you to show yourself real to me. And the last thing I would say as we close is, you don't need to hear that as some wildly charismatic statement. It's Ephesians 5, where Paul says, continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a command. Love one another. Forgive one another. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. They're all commands. Again, you don't have to hear that in some kind of 
wild and crazy way. It has nothing to do with whether you speak in tongues or fall on the floor. It doesn't have anything to do with any of that. What it has to do is a recognition that the power of godliness is, is God within you. It's the Holy Spirit living within you who empowers you to live a righteous and holy life. Who empowers you to be obedient. Who uses you to bless other people. Walk in the fullness of the Spirit. When was the last time you intentionally and consciously prayed this prayer? Very simple. God, fill me with your Spirit. When was the last time you prayed that? If it wasn't today then you may want to reconsider that element of your prayer life. What does it look like for you to daily walk in the fullness of the Spirit? Again, I'm not talking about spiritual experiences. I'm not talking about emotions. I'm talking about the reality that God lives within you. And He wants to empower you to live both a faithful and a fruitful life. He's the one. But only... As we acknowledge our need for him. And that comes from saying, God, fill me. It's a recognition that I'm empty. It's a recognition that I can't do it on my own. It's a recognition that you have resources that I need. That's what I'm saying when I'm saying, fill me with your spirit. I'm saying, I don't have, whatever I've got is not enough. Whatever things are going on in me are not sufficient for the life of holiness and fruitfulness that you've called me to. I don't have it. I can't get the job done on my own. And so I need your spirit within me. And not last week, today, today. The things that are before me today, I can't handle apart from you. I can't produce love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. I don't have enough of those things for the relationships and the circumstances I'm going to encounter. So I need you to fill me with your spirit. God, I'm not smart enough to figure my way through. And so I need you to fill me with your spirit, to give me guidance and direction. God, I need you to encourage me in in recognizing the other people in my life. I, I can't encourage them on my own. I need you to give me words of encouragement for other people. There are people who are sick, and it's beyond the scope of what our medical community can handle. God, we need you to fill us so we can pray for people to be healed and they would be. All, in all of those things, when you're saying, God, fill me with your spirit, it's just a recognition of your own inadequacy. That's what it means to walk daily in the fullness of the spirit, is to daily recognize your inadequacy for the demands of the day and to say, God, I need what you've got or I'm not going to be faithful and I'm not going to be fruitful. Second Samuel 12. Way different from 2 Samuel 14. These feel different when you're reading them. The fruit is very different that comes out of them. We want to be 2 Samuel 12 people. Acknowledge if you're going through the motions. Don't justify. Just confess. Awaken your heart to the reality that God is alive. Daily walk in the fullness of the Spirit. Let's pray.
God, I thank you for the for the men and the women in this room. I thank you for the profound desire you have to be in a deep and meaningful relationship with every one of them. And God, would you forgive us for not recognizing that? God, would you forgive us for having good ideas, maybe even good intentions, trying to execute them on our own? God, I pray that in the next four minutes that you would convince every single one of us of the reality that you are alive, that you are real, that you are active, that you are responsive. The the God of the universe responds to the prayers of his people. That is mind-blowing. And yet scripture is full of testimony that that is true. The God of the universe says, worship me in spirit and in truth. Mind-blowing. And yet, Scripture says, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for that response from us. God, I pray that we would know you're alive and active. And God, would you fill us with your Spirit today? And would you remind us to pray tomorrow and Tuesday and Thursday and in June and in 2021? God, would you remind us of the reality that the bread you give to us is daily? Is daily. It's not a one-shot deal that lasts for the rest of our life. It's daily bread. That your mercies are new every morning. God, that daily we would come before you and confess both our inadequacy and acknowledge your sufficiency. That is found in the person of your spirit living and dwelling within us. God, I pray for people who have theological or kind of hang-ups from their past, God, that you would set them free from that baggage and they would realize the simplicity of that command. Daily be filled with the Spirit. Continually be being filled. And you would knock off all the baggage and we would live in that reality so that we can be faithful over time and so that we can bear fruit that would last. And so would you come now, I pray. Would you minister into the hearts of each one of us? In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand. We're going to close with worship and ministry. We'll have teams here up in the front. If you feel like there's an area of your life where you're going through the motions, please allow us to pray with you about that. And what we're going to pray is that God would awaken you to the reality that he is alive and that he would fill you with this spirit. If you're feeling drained and worn out. Please come and let us pray for God to refresh you and to renew you this morning.